Thank you, Alice and Alejandra and the music team for um, all that you did to make this worship experience special for us today. It's been a bit of a roller coaster week for us. The boys had their, on Wednesday, their last day of school at their current school. So they're actually transferring to a different school next year. So it was a bittersweet moment of them saying goodbye to their friends and teachers, me saying goodbye to the parents and the, you know, community that we've established there. Um, and, you know, we're, we're sad, but we're also looking forward to a new chapter, um, in our family's life next year with lots of commuting to Nanawari. <laughs> For those of you who have been following my laptop saga, I have, I bring good tidings of, of good news that yesterday I got my data back. Woohoo! Um, I got all of it recovered, including the, the latest um, manuscript of my book that I was very concerned about. So now, this next week, I'll have to take the laptop to actually get repaired. But at least I've got the, the data back, which I'm very happy about. I can't believe that Monday is Christmas. You know, this year I've been like so over the year and I was like waiting for the year to end, but now that it's actually here, I'm not ready. <laughs> um, none of our gifts are wrapped under the tree. Our boys are like, are we getting presents this year? We're like, yes, we just haven't wrapped them yet. <laughs> like, they're coming, it's coming. Um, and I'm looking forward to those of you on Monday who are free. Um, looking forward to having you over at our place for lunch. Um, I know a lot of you are traveling, so if you're watching online, Merry Christmas to you and safe travels, and hope you have a wonderful time with your family and friends wherever you are. Last week, the children did a fantastic job um, with the Christmas play. I've heard, you know, from various people, like we went to... Um, uh, uh, Bernie's dad is Micah's pediatrician, and we had a pediatrician appointment with him. And the first thing he said when Micah walked in was, I heard you guys did a great job. <laughs> um, and so, and then, you know, here and there, we've been hearing good things. And they did, um, yeah, it was really, um, it was the first time, like I said last week, that the children did a play. Um, and I, I'm hoping that um, next year they would be up to doing, doing it again. Um, and, you know, it's a good reminder this Christmas season of the story of Jesus. But perhaps because it's such a well-known story, we might miss the significance of the concept of a mighty, powerful God becoming a baby. Why would he give up the glories of heaven to come into this dark world? Would you give up going from here to here? Why would he give up the fellowship of angels to interact with stubborn, sinful human beings? Apparently, people have found up to 48 reasons in the Bible for why Jesus came, including to give his life a ransom for many, to fulfill the law and prophets, to reveal, to reveal God's love for sinners, to seek and save the lost, to reveal God's glory. And these are all good answers and right answers for why Jesus came. But I wanted to explore this afternoon a little bit, um, a more detailed question. Not just why Jesus came, but for me, I've been thinking a lot about why Jesus came as a baby. And, I mean, if I were God, and it's a good thing I'm not, but I would have ascended from heaven with all the angels, right? And everyone on earth can see um, all my glory, die for humanity, and then go back up. But instead, God comes as a baby, stripped of all resources and strength, extremely small and vulnerable. And not just a baby born in a palace, but a, born, a baby born to a poor family who can't even afford a room at the end. 
in. Because they say there's no room, but you know if you have money, there's always room. In the Old Testament, God often appeared in quite majestic and awesome ways. On mountaintops with thunder and lightning, in a burning bush, in a pillar of fire and cloud, in the Shekinah glory that, that was over the most holy place, in the fiery furnace in Babylon. But when Jesus comes, he comes as an embryo, so small and so human. Why? And while it was and still remains a very difficult concept for us to accept, I believe that God came as a baby because God chose to become one of us. For thousands of years, God had been one for us. And he had been one with us, but here he's one of us. He takes the full human journey to be born, to take that first breath, to become completely dependent and vulnerable. The first crawl, the first time he sits up, the first few steps, learning to navigate the world, learning to obey his parents, learning to read, make friends, face bullies, go through puberty, working at his dad's shop, discovering his own calling and identity, navigating tricky relationships, facing trials and temptations, being hungry and thirsty and cold and tired and poor, being betrayed and hurt and lonely and heartbroken. And then he experienced something else that God had never experienced before. He died. From birth to death, Jesus lived out the entire gamut of human experience as one of us, as a son of Adam, as a human being. Why? So that he could walk alongside us in our journey from birth to death as someone who understands what we're going through. Someone that when we are suffering, leans in and says, me too. Someone relatable and approachable and vulnerable and compassionate. Could it be that that's why he came as a baby? Because babies are irresistibly approachable. I remember when Micah and Joshua were babies, right? And they'd be in a pram or in, in a carrier. It doesn't matter. People would come up, try to see, you know, their faces. Ask, strangers would ask me, you know, how old are they, right? And sometimes would ask if they could, you know, comfort cuddle. And they would always reach out and, you know, poke them or something like that. Babies are irresistibly approachable. They haven't done anything remarkable. And yet everyone wants to come and meet this child. A baby invites all humanity from all backgrounds to come and see. Shepherds who were lowly were not afraid to come and see this baby. And they could come as they were, smelly, right, dirty. But it didn't matter because babies don't judge. And they were coming to see him. God made himself small for us so that the smallest person would feel safe coming to him. A baby also signals a new generation. Jesus didn't come as a fully grown man starting a revolution. He came as a baby ushering in a new revelation of God, a new understanding, a new culture, a new family. Did you know 
I, I was um, quite shocked to discover that 2024 is the last year of Generation Alpha. It's already almost over, Generation Alpha. Babies born from 2025 onwards will be part of Generation Beta. Each generation has its own ethos distinct from their parents, their own collective shared experience of challenges and joys, their own values, their own vocabulary. A few months ago, some family friends invited us to the Coburg drive-thru. Yay, I can see it. Well done, Andrew. Um, and I could not understand half the movie. And I realized that the movie demographics was definitely not me. Because they were using, like, it was in English, but I couldn't understand what they were saying. Because it's aimed for Generation Alpha. Words and jokes. And, you know, my boys are sitting in the front of the car, and they're laughing. I have no idea why I hear words like riz and the aki way. And I have no idea what is happening in the story. So what did I do? Scroll on my phone for the best smashed avo in the area. No, I'm just kidding. But could it be that Jesus came as a baby to signal a new era? His birth and life was an unfolding of an idea whose time has come, an unveiling of a new identity for a new people group. His birth signaled a new generation, a new culture, a new lineage and family. One of Jesus' best friends, John the disciple, wrote, He was in the world, John chapter 1, verses 10 to 14. He was in the world, and, through, and though the world was made through him, the world did not recognize him. He came to that which was his own, but his own did not receive him. Yet to all who did receive him, to those who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God. Children born not of natural descent, nor of human decision, or a husband's will, but born of God. The word became flesh and made his dwelling among us. Right? Jesus' birth as a baby ushered in this new identity as children of God. Born not through descent, not because you were born in the Israelite nation, but through the spirit of God, you are now a child of God. The first century uh, Christian theologian Paul put it this way. He said in Romans chapter 5, verses 12 and 15, Just as through one human being sin came into the world and death through, came through sin, so death has come to everyone since everyone has sinned. Verse 15, But the free gift of Christ isn't like Adam's failure. Many people died through what one person did wrong. God's grace is multiplied even more for many people with the gift of the one person, Jesus Christ, that comes through grace. You see, Adam's choices had led to sinful humanity being destined for death. But Jesus' choices made possible a new humanity of forgiven people destined for life. Another one of Jesus' closest disciples understood this change of identity. And so he wrote in 1 Peter chapter 2, verses 9 and 10, But you are a chosen people, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, God's special possession, so that you may declare the praises of him who called you out of darkness into his wonderful light. Once you were not a people, but now you are the people of God. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. Jesus was born as a baby, a fully human being, to be that new human, ushering in a new generation who is going to relate to God differently who's going to live life differently with new values, new language, and a new common identity as Christians. 
So what were some of those key distinctives of this generation, right? Every generation, they have their thing, right? We've got the baby boomers who are very hardworking, right? And supposedly millennials are, like I said, eating in cafes, having brunch, right? <laughs> no. And then you've got, you know, alpha. Every generation has their key distinctives. So what are some of the key distinctives of this new generation that Jesus ushered in with, through his birth? We find it in Philippians chapter 2, verses 5 and 8. In your relationships with one another, have the same mindset as Christ Jesus, who, being in very nature God, did not consider equality with God something to be used to his own advantage. Rather, he made himself nothing by taking the very nature of a servant being made in human likeness, and being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself to become obedient to death, even death on a cross. The characteristics of this new generation of followers of Jesus, they're humble. They're obedient. They understand what it means to be incarnate, one with, one amongst he becomes one of us, not high and mighty and far, but here and near and now. A baby born in a stable, laid in a manger, wrapped in swaddling clothes. Vulnerable, approachable, and relatable. And inspires and empowers us to be the same. To be here and near and now to the people around us. To obey God and his calling, even if it means suffering and sacrifice. And even when it's nothing heroic or public, but something as mundane as changing a nappy, being a good listener to someone in pain, cooking a meal for someone who is hungry, checking in with someone who's lonely, making ourselves small so that anyone can meet Jesus, being patient with God's purpose. Because after all, a baby cannot save the world. A baby is not the Messiah yet. I wonder if Mary, as she was raising this child, was wishing he would grow up a little bit faster so they could get out of their poverty. I wonder if Joseph, as he lay on his deathbed, wished that Jesus had begun showing signs of his divinity. I wonder if the shepherds, as they were paying their heavy taxes to Rome, wondered what happened to that baby from 30 years ago. For 30 years, Jesus grew up one day at a time in Bethlehem, in Egypt, in Nazareth. And even though he knew what he was destined for, he apprenticed himself as a carpenter under Joseph. He did the ditches. He ran errands. He did his daily tasks faithfully, patiently waiting until the right time to begin his public ministry. While the Bible does not tell us very much about the first 30 years of his life, it was those first 30 years that enabled him to teach and preach and perform the miracles that he did in the last three and a half years of his life. God was present with the world for 30 years before anyone recognized him. In my utmost for his highest, Oswald Chambers says this, The great marvel of the incarnation slips into ordinary childhood's life. The great marvel of the transfiguration vanishes in the devil-possessed valley. The glory of the resurrection descends into breakfast on the seashore. This is not an anticlimax, but a great revelation of God. See, God reveals himself to us not only in dreams and visions and miracles and angels, but in the homeless man outside of coals, in your child, in a flower. 
God reveals himself to us in unexpected, ordinary ways. Could it be that Jesus came into the world not as an adult ready with a mission and statement and value statement, but as a baby to teach us how to find God in the everyday? There is an app that I really like called Songs from a Strange Land, written by one of my favorite authors, Celia Kemp, who happens to be here today. (laughs) But um, my favorite bit in the app says this. It says, Luke's story starts in the most holy place, but it moves to the womb of a teenage girl. Up to now, for God to be predictably in one space, for God to dwell with us, required careful rules setting aside a particular people in a particular place and particular times. That is, first the tabernacle and then the temple. A feeding trough is not very much like the most holy place of the tabernacle. And Mary is seriously unclean at this point under the Levitical regulations. She shall not touch any holy thing. Only there she is, breastfeeding God. The Hebrew scriptures set out a lot of rules to keep the holy and the common separate so God could dwell with God's people. This story mixes them right up and leaves us with an acute problem of discernment. God may have been found in a feeding trough, but not everything found in a feeding trough is God. So how do we recognize what is and what isn't God? Could it be that Jesus came into this world as a baby, to teach us to to learn to look for signs of his presence. In Luke 2, the angels told the shepherds in Luke chapter 2 that a savior had been born to him, and the sign was that there'd be a baby wrapped in clothes and lying in a manger. A baby was a sign that the savior of the world had come. A rainbow is a sign of God's mercy. A loaf of bread and a cup of juice are signs of Jesus' sacrifice on our behalf. A bird is a sign of the Holy Spirit. Two wooden beams are signs of redemption. Ordinary items that point us towards the extraordinary God who wants to be with us. And as you recognize God in these ordinary moments and in the ordinary people, we finally can live out our lives with confidence that God has a purpose for us. That even though we're not going you know, out and doing heroic things, and we're not doing things that necessarily get heralded throughout the world as this new revelation of God, it's those daily, ordinary moments where God is working. Let me end by reading a story, a folktale that, um, that has been retold by Angela Elwell, Elwell Hunt and illustrated by Tim Junk. You might know the story. It's pretty... Uh, it's, it's been around for a very long time. No one knows exactly who started it. But it goes like this. Once upon a mountaintop, three little trees stood and dreamed of what they wanted to become when they grew up. The first little tree looked up at the stars, trolling like diamonds above him, and said, I want to hold treasure. I want to be covered with gold and filled with precious stones. I will be the most beautiful treasure chest in the world. The second little tree looked out at the small stream trickling on its way to the ocean. I want to be a strong sailing ship, he said. I want to travel mighty waters and carry powerful kings. I will be the strongest ship in the world. The third little tree looked down into the valley below where busy men and women worked in a busy town. I don't want to leave the mountain at all, he said. I want to grow so tall that when people stop to look at me, they'll raise their eyes to heaven and think of God. I will be the tallest tree in the world. Years passed. The rains came, the sun shone, and little trees grew tall. And one day, three woodcutters climbed the mountain. 
The first woodcutter looked at the first tree and said, This tree is beautiful. It is perfect for me. And with a soup of his shining axe, the first tree fell. Now I shall be made into a beautiful chest, thought the first tree. I shall hold wonderful treasures. The second woodcutter looked at the second tree and said, This tree is strong. It is perfect for me. And with a soup of his shining axe, the second tree fell. Now I shall sail the mighty waters, thought the second tree. I shall be a strong ship fit for kings. The third tree felt her heart sink when the last woodcutter looked her way. She stood straight and tall and pointed bravely to heaven. But the woodcutter never even looked up. Any kind of tree will do for me, he muttered. And with the swoop of his shining axe, the third tree fell. The first tree rejoiced when the woodcutter brought him to a carpenter's shop. But the busy carpenter was not thinking about treasure chests. Instead, his work-worn hands fashioned the tree into a feed box for animals. The once beautiful tree was not covered with gold nor with treasure. She was coated with sawdust, filled with hay for hungry farm animals. The second tree smiled when the woodcutter took him to a shipyard, but no mighty sailing ship was made that day. Instead, the one strong tree was hammered and sawed into a simple fishing boat. Too small and too weak to sail in an ocean or even a river, he was taken to a little lake where every day he brought in loads of dead, smelly fish. The third tree was confused when the woodcutter cut her into strong beams and left her in a lumberyard. What happened? The tree wondered. All I ever wanted to do was stay on the mountain and point to God. Many, many days and nights passed. The trees nearly forgot their dreams. But one night, a golden starlight poured over the first tree as a young woman placed her newborn baby in the feed box. I wish I could make a cradle for him, the husband whispered. The mother squeezed his hand and smiled as the starlight shone on the smooth and sturdy wood. The manger is beautiful, she said. And suddenly the first tree knew he was holding the greatest treasure in the world. One evening, a tired traveler and his friends crowded into the old fishing boat. The traveler fell asleep as the second tree quietly sailed out into the lake. Soon a thundering and thrashing storm arose, and the little tree shuddered. He knew he did not have the strength to carry so many passengers safely through the wind and rain. But the tired man awoke. He stood up, stretched out his hand, and said, Peace, be still. And the storm stopped as quickly as it had begun. And suddenly the second tree knew he was carrying the king of heaven and earth. And one Friday morning, the third tree was startled when her beams were yanked from the forgotten woodpile. She flinched as she was carried through an angry, jeering crowd. She shuddered when the soldiers nailed the man's hands to her. She felt ugly and harsh and cruel. But on Sunday morning, when the sun rose and the earth trembled with joy beneath her, the third tree knew that God's love had changed everything. It had made the first tree beautiful. It had made the second tree strong. And every time people thought about the third tree, they would think of God. And that was better than being the tallest tree in the world. This Christmas, as we spend time with our family and friends and hopefully have some good food, and good company. I pray that we might recognize in the ordinary things and the ordinary moments and the ordinary people around us the extraordinary love and purpose of God. And may that recognition and realization and living out of that truth transform us into children of God. I invite the praise team to come back up as we sing, Great is Thy Faithfulness. Please join me in prayer. Father God, thank you for your faithfulness 
that every day, giving us life, giving us people that we can turn to, giving us nature and giftedness in different ways where we can live out our skills and talents for others and for you. I pray that we might discover new mercies every day, that we would see your hand in the ordinary, and that as a result we can live extraordinary lives of purpose and clarity. Please be with all those who are traveling this Christmas season. Keep them safe. And Father God, may this season be a time where we can slow down and really lean in to hear you whispering to us and revealing Jesus to us. I pray in the name of your son, Jesus. Amen.